You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Welcome to Season 2 of Another Name for Everything. Casual conversations with Richard Rohr, responding to listener questions from his new book, The Universal Christ, and Season 1 of this podcast. As mentioned previously, this podcast is recorded on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation and may contain the quirky sounds of our neighborhood and setting. We are your hosts. I'm Paul Swanson. And I'm Bree Stoner. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst getting hangry, bouts of fitful sleep, and the shifting state of our world. This is the final of 12 weekly episodes. Today, we will be discussing your questions on spiritual practice, How do we live out the universal Christ in practical ways in our lives? So Richard, the theme of the questions that we're going to be presenting to you today and be in conversation with are all about how do we live this out? How do we bring Mm. practices uh, into our community and into our personal lives that all revolve around the universal Christ? So we wanted to kick off with this first question from Jason from uh, Maple Grove, Minnesota. I've read The Universal Christ and listened to Another Name for Everything, as well as the recent interviews on the Liturgist podcast with Father Richard, where he said, I think I was writing to sincere seekers and hoping that there's still some sincere seekers inside the fold of Christianity. This is an extremely apt description of me as I'm a Lutheran pastor but from way before I sensed God calling me into ministry, I identified as a seeker and still do publicly to this day, identify as a pastor and a seeker. Something I love about the ELCA is that coming from a Reformation heritage, we recognize the need for ongoing reform, both of the church and our theology. That's right, very good. And here's his question. I love how the universal Christ frames the holiness of Holy Communion in the holiness a.k.a. Christ-soakedness of all creation. That has been a powerful theological reframing of that sacrament for me and my congregation. This has left me pondering, how does the broader theological framing of the universal Christ repaint the power found in the sacrament of baptism? Mm, Baptism. Well, let's let's dive in. with the, the notion of, of the centrality of water. Their life as we know it, even on other planets, cannot exist without this thing called H2O. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That one element would be essential for all life. The other uh, reason I love the metaphor of water You've heard me say it in other places. It always seeks the lower place. It always fills the lower place. That is just such a perfect metaphor for humility and for God's self-emptying. So, I I mean, it's just wonderful to me that we have our initiation rite being a drowning in water, a diving into water, a being buried in water. Use whatever wording you want. But it's good stuff. It really is. It is a primal symbol. Uh, The the Hindus discovered it in the Ganges. The Jewish people discovered it in the 
what was the wonderful name for the bath that a woman took? The mikvah. Mikvah, yes. The mikvah. Um, And John the Baptist was building on all of this, not those other traditions beyond Judaism that he wouldn't have known about. But it's it's primal archetypal symbolism. When I uh, read a book when I was creating the Men's Rites of Passage, they had just discovered the cave in Israel. I don't know if you've heard this, that they think was the cave of John the Baptist. And uh, uh, only a woman, I'm told, could appreciate this, but there are 28 steps into the water. <laughs> that they saw 28 as the, the cycle of, of life and death. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is good stuff. That's really good stuff. But the, the fact that John the Baptist, the son of priests on both sides of his family, would have been, been Jewish royalty, as it were, you know, who would have been fully expected to become a priest himself, and that he would create his own offbeat ritual outside the temple. This had to have created problems with his family, or at least with the neighbors, Mm -hmm. and that's probably revealed in that story of why don't you name him uh, after yourself, Zechariah, that there were some struggles between what the family thought he should be and what the father supports him in. No, he's John. He's his own man. That's the way I read it. But the the creating of a water-based nature ritual, (laughs) not in the temple, not in any building made by human beings, is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Now, we pulled that back inside the church, made it extremely ecclesiastical, you know, in Florence, we surround it with marble and gold and build a tower above it, which is lovely architecture, but there's no connection to nature anymore. What's And not really much connection to water. Your Baptist must be loving all this. I was, just, <laughs> I was just sitting here swimming in, if you will, pun intended, the sacred waters of my own tradition. Yes, uh, it really is. Now I was thinking about that, though. You know, how, how have we screwed this up in a way? Um, we really did. Because I was, I was reflecting on the fact that for, from my Baptist background, it was almost seen as uh, like a two-part uh, stepped action that you needed to take for salvation. Step one, accept Jesus into your heart. Mm. Step two, you seal the deal with your baptism in which you express <laughs> your commitment, you know. So Jesus can't leak out. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I can still remember the experience of being submerged. And I think because, mm-hmm, wow. because and I, I was nine years old, and I think because there was so much intentionality around this ritual. Of course. And, um, you know, I had been invited by all of my Catholic friends to their first communions. First communions. And this was the- That's what took its place. Right, and this was the thing that I got to invite my friends to. And so all my friends came, watched me, you know, be submerged in this little pool inside this building. It wasn't a natural setting, unfortunately. But I remember the experience of submersion and that has stayed Mm. with me, the physicality of it. Yeah, um, yep, that's good. When I hear you say things like, we live in an abundant universe, um, you know, even your work, breathing underwater, mm. it's like there's so much about this ritual that can inform so much about mm. the entirety of our lives. 
if we let it. If and we if, let it. And if we were to reframe it, which I hope we do, I hope we, I hope we reframe it to, to have this universal Christ spin on it. Um, what would that look like for us to baptize each other in that way? Mm-hmm. And as a fellow Minnesotan, Jason, um, I had the experience of being baptized in a lake and that prof- profoundness of being in nature in a place that, that I would go swimming in. That's actually the same lake where I learned how to swim. Real? Oh my God, is that And neat. then to have the pastor, when I was submerged, hold you down just long enough. Just a little bit. To yeah. know that, like, yeah. are you going to come up? A little like, bit of drowning. It's, it's <laughs> a little that's bit of drowning. And I think um, I had that similar experience of, like, it It helped me, in a way, I think, participate in a Christ-soaked world without having that language yet because I sure. was in the natural world and I was, yes. you know, having yes. that moment of panic of, <gasps> you know, am I going to come up? <laughs> right, uh, right. And there's something about that, I think, when our rituals reflect the, the depth of the, of the tradition instead of just the ceremonial um sprinkling and i'm not knocking that and well, well maybe I, I am a little bit knock it <laughs> hey, you take over from here <laughs> i mean because i have to say where we lost it was this whole after 313 identification with empire and we had and and the doctrine of original sin mm-hmm. that we had to get everybody saved exactly. as soon as possible yeah. so like i was baptized eight days after I was born, knew nothing about it. So it had to become magical thinking. And it maintained us at the level of magical thinking Mm -hmm. uh, far too long. So um, how unfortunate. These sacraments, um, they need to all be reclaimed because they're so good. They're so good and so meaningful. Uh, Peter from Johnson City, Tennessee says, okay, I get the idea of being fully accepted. Okay, that everything and everyone belongs, and also that in early stages of life, the container must be built. So how do you propose a program of formation for the universal Christ in a parish setting? Well, I do hope uh, the study guide we put out to accompany the book uh, can really, uh, it was really, it's very well done, if Mm -hmm. I can say. I didn't do it. (laughs) But uh, people who are, more expert in curriculum and pedagogy, did it very well. So I'd point you there first of all. But it's the both and language that I'm obsessed with, forgive me, but there is a way to name uh, initial sense of the good, the true, and the beautiful in a concrete way, in a substantial way, but always leave room for growth, for development. We don't have to talk in such absolute language to talk about transcendent language. Uh, Now, I know that's hard to imagine. Doesn't God language have to be absolute? Yes, but not in a punishing way, not in a threatening way, but in an awesome way. And a lot of evangelical songs certainly achieve that. We had, uh, holy God, we praise thy name. So I I know God isn't God unless God is somehow perceived as awesome. But we substituted for awesome threat. We really did. And and, uh, threat is negative awesome, if I can 
put it that way. So, so just watch that kind of, of language or that kind of desire. But otherwise, I bet a person like you, Peter, can just trust your Christian common sense. Don't overreact like a lot of the progressives did. Don't overreact and throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, everything we teach here in the living school is, is both and, or as we say now, include and transcend. Include the previous stages. Always include the previous stages. And that is transcendence. I don't think people know how revolutionary that is. There, there's no reformations or revolutions in history that knew how to do that. Really, it was always, forgive me, kill the bastards, mm -hmm. kill the previous people who were wrong. Mm -hmm. It wasn't include and transcend. This is high order thinking given us by Christ, Jesus in the Gospels, that in fact we transcend not by throwing out the old, but by sifting it and recognizing what is substantial, what is real, what is worth containing and maintaining, and what isn't worth it. You, you I think wisdom is distinguishing the essentials from the non-essentials. And if you have an elder who can teach you how to do that, beat a path to her door or his door, that's wisdom. That's essential. You just read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The law says, I say. Is it six times in a row? Something like that. The law says, I say. The law says, I say. He is a magnificent sifter <laughs> who gets to the core of what it really means and what it doesn't mean. Uh, but I've found in my lifetime that is a rare gift. Most of our, our reformations were, in my opinion, based around non-essentials mm. that were partially essential, I don't want to say, but then we absolutized the formula yeah. or the timing or the who, who administers the sacrament. Is it a man? Is it a woman? Is it an ordained person? Uh, even we in the Catholic tradition had wiggle room in most of these that if, if death is imminent or threatening, anybody can do it, you know? Uh, it doesn't take a priest, which shows it doesn't really take a priest. <laughs> uh, but um, those are the things we argued about, because that's the nature of the ego, to want to say only. That puts you in control as soon as you can use only language. Mm. And that's, God bless Martin Luther, I love him. Uh, but once he said sola only, scriptura, he set us up for dualism for 500 years. Mm. How can there only be one source of truth? And now we're all seeing that, that it, it, it sent us down a path of fighting that for the most part wasn't worth it. Mm. <laughs> we fought and died for things and killed people for things that were non-essentials. Did I quote the motto of John the 23rd the other day? In essentials, unity, 
in non-essentials liberty and in all things charity. I, I think he got it from someone else, but they do say it was his motto. Oh, That's a, a good, good one. Yeah. yeah. And Richard, part of what I hear you saying to Peter's question is um, that you don't need necessarily need the the pastor or the priest to be the one who needs to set the program in the setting, but to also find a few and yeah. and be able to, to let that bubble up. And if you, they were using the Universal Christ Study Guide. <clears throat> Um, that it doesn't need to be a, a whole church program, but could also just be a smaller group within. That do, it doesn't need to, t- to be so formulaic in a way. It doesn't need to be sanctioned yeah. by the, the whole parish in order for it to be something Well, you that, know where we're seeing this is we started 30 years ago the men's rites of passage. And in different parts of the country, I don't know if it's in Minnesota yet, these wonderful group of fathers and uncles and grandfathers are getting together and creating up a parallel, maybe just one day, two day set of rituals and experiences for the young men. Those have all been created by locals. And you know, they're imitating what we did. I think it's really beautiful. And we've seen some very creative things created. I love that. Oh, I guess I should say, too, if you do want that study guide, you can get it for free at universalchrist.org. You can download the study guide there uh, free of charge. So our next question uh, comes from Andrea from Maine. And she asks, in one episode, Richard said, Jesus never punished. He always healed. My question is, yes, he never punished, but he did confront a lot. With long years of contemplation, I have managed to starve my urges to punish. But I will. I still struggle with when to confront. I'm also aware that the object of my confrontation often experiences it as a punishment. Do you have any insights on how to discern when to, conf- when to confront evil and when to simply pursue the good? I experience this dilemma in my family life as a wife, mother, and grandmother, and in my professional life as a church musician, especially the latter. Andrea, you're just being honest. and. And it's a necessary honesty because some people hear this as an unhelpful softness. That to be a Christian is to say everything is beautiful, everything goes. Uh, I always jump back to you must succeed, first of all, a dualistic clarity. Then your response is non-dual and non-punitive. But you know, it's, and I've had to learn this as a one. I always thought that I was just truth speaking (laughs) or confronting. And maybe I was, and maybe I was even right. But the energy in my voice, I think hurt a lot of people over the years. And I didn't hear the energy in my voice. I just heard, well, I just said to her, (laughs) this or that, and as a one justifying what I had done. It's energy that matters. It's energy that people hear. It's certainly energy that children hear. Mm -hmm. And so there's a way of confronting with righteous zeal, with superiority, with a bit of a desire to humiliate or to defeat or to expose the other person. Uh, I think I did that a lot as a young man. Convinced I was 
on a pedestal of righteousness. Mm -hmm. And invariably, my cause was correct. But, you know, I started with this youth community. And I was 10 years on them. They were, when it started, they were 17. I was 27. And for the next 10 years, we're growing up together, building this, this community. And believe me, there was one of me and hundreds and hundreds of them. And, I mean, they were young kids filled with hormones and filled with energy and filled with power needs and all the rest. And so I got thrust into this role of being the, um, what? The controlling parent. This is not acceptable. Mm. Uh, There's a line in the sand, you know. I don't know if I used that phrase in those days, but it wasn't even that people disagreed with me. But in those intermediate years, there was many a tearful conversation where people would have to come in and say, Richard, I needed your approval so much, and I was so trying to please you, and the way you said that just devastated me. Mm. (coughs) And then I, of course, felt devastated because it was totally surprised Mm -hmm. that I said it that way, not knowing how much they were trying to please me and how much they needed my approval. Now, put that on a parent. Like, your little ones need your approval. So every parent must struggle with this. How do I put necessary lines? (coughs) Excuse me, Jimmy, this is not good. Mm -hmm. Uh, But have a little rise in your voice at the end. This is not good. (laughs) This is not good. This is not the way we do it in our family. it's, it seems like it's very apt for relationships as well, like, like you know, partnerships, romantic partnerships. What, what I appreciate about what you're saying is the importance of the purity of heart and spirit yep, yep. first, which is rarely what we want to do. Usually it's, I feel some injustice has happened. Yeah. I need my feelings need to be validated. You know, don't you dare invalidate my experience of how you said that, you know, uh, the difference between that and actually going away and taking the time to work out, to sit with, to let go of everything that needs to be let go of, of the wounded ego or the sense of self-righteous judgment, and then to come to the person and say, hey, you remember yesterday when you said that thing? Um, that that was really hard to hear, and it brought up this in me. You know, this is such a different energy behind yeah. that. You're still being very honest, very clear. Yeah but not condemning, not humiliating. This is nonviolent communication. Yeah. But so many of us, I think, get caught in the throes of reactivity and don't even know it, which is why, you know, contemplative practice it creates the ability for us to begin to observe that reactive part of ourselves that wants to just be self-righteous, justified. I'm going to go tell this person what they did. <laughs> yeah, it's like b- being caught inside the emotion instead of the emotion being mm. like a vehicle mm. of like what you're actually experiencing, right? Yeah. And boy, I I think in my own journey of embodiment, it, I've been able to tell a lot more when I'm actually upset and yes, when I, I need to I'm speak to that. Still learning it. Yeah, it's, it's a lifelong <laughs> process, right? Like oh. it's Oh, why does my stomach hurt in this uh, way? Oh, I'm still why carrying is there that, that wound. Tightness in my throat. Yes. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, this I'm sure we could talk on and on, but I do find 
those of us of a more progressive nature are in some ways even more guilty of this righteous language, righteous emotions, taking offense at non-political correctness. And it's always by what we've decided is politically correct. So we've got a lot to learn in this regard. And it's caused huge political problems in this country. That the left has not learned how to speak with respect for the other side. Mm. Yeah. Or psychologically, too, I think we live in a culture that places such high emphasis on therapy and, you know, healthy psychology to the point where it's like everything oh, yeah. is about your feelings, mm. right? And that becomes exhausting because it's Thanks like... Thanks for saying it. I can't you know, say that. At the end of the true. day, I hear mm. that, you're feel, that you're feeling this, that, and the other thing, but there has to be a selfhood underneath mm all of that emotionality or else we are just swimming in constant reactivity Con very good <laughs> wow for a four to say that and i know <laughs> but I, I know you live that too you know yeah it's um it's not going to get us anywhere if yeah. we keep absolutizing you heard me say in my days when i talked more about the true self false self when paul says in corinthians love takes no offense and I always said, the way you can tell you're living in your false self is the false self always takes offense. So it's just sitting around waiting to be offended. Yeah. You can't, believe me, trust me on this, you can't offend the true self. Mm -hmm. And so all this therapeutic talking about my feelings were offended, that's as far as therapy can go because they can't talk about the substantial self in God. The, God, the person who knows who they are created in the image and likeness of God. You can't touch me there. Mm. I, I, and that's easy to say, and I know it's much harder to do. I'm sure I'd be the first one to take offense. But I can say in all fairness, even to myself, not in the long term. Next time I go to serious prayer, I see it was my false self. That was offended mm. yeah and my true self can see right through it it was my need to appear good the need for people to like me the need to appear smart or holy or christian um, mm. and the need to appear is the false self you understand there's nothing wrong with being holy right but the need to appear holy yes <laughs> there's yeah. nothing wrong with being right yeah. but the need to appear right you got a problem that's so subtle. Mm -hmm. and I think it speaks to the need of co constantly forgiving yourself, right? Yep, For living yep. out of that I false self. To. Yeah. Lifetime of humility. That was a very question. Yeah. yeah. So turning now to how, how we live out this message of the universal Christ in relationships um, of difference and where people are in different pages. Brian from Texas says in this episode, uh, Brian from Texas says, Father Richard spoke about the fact that God mourns the fallen Taliban warrior as much as the fallen U.S. infantryman. I'm paraphrasing. Sure. But he also yes. cautioned against going too far and falling into the relativistic morality of the president when he talked about the Charleston violence and said that there were good people on both sides. He talked about using the dualistic mind almost as if it were a tool to help us employ discernment in these situations. Part of my personal journey of deconstruction of the last few years has also been slow, still incomplete, 
waking up to my own privilege and my responsibility as a fellow citizen. And beyond that, the more I listen to Father Richard, the more I realize it's actually my responsibility as a fellow beloved, beloved child of God to be an active ally to those who are suffering from injustice. Here's his catch. <laughs> he says, my 76-year-old father has taught me uh, by example and in his words, the value of outspoken love and generosity. But he has also taught me how to be misogynistic, racist, homophobic, and anti-liberal. He's a diehard Trumper who employs a migrant worker to mow his yard, and he overpays him so that he can feed his, ki- his kids. Wow. Does Father Richard have any advice for someone like <clears throat> me who wants to be a mediator between complicated people like my father and those who are suffering? in the service of the sort of cosmic re- cosmic reconciliation the CAC seems to be working toward. Isn't that just beautiful? It really is. Like talk about not wow. othering, right? right? It's yes. like, here's the complex person of my dad. Yeah. He's this, but he's also that. He really mm-hmm. sees him. That's beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Both hand, both hand, always both hand. But that he has the eyes to honor both and, even in his own father. Mm -hmm. The teenage boy would say, you're a hypocrite, Dad, you know, would be quick to point out uh, the inconsistency. But you both use the wonderful word complex. Isn't compassion and forgiveness really a recognizing of complexity? Mm. And... um, judgment, rash judgment, we used to call it, is always insisting on a simple either-or. That's all you can expect from a teenager. It really is. Uh, and, And even in his father, that yes, he employs a migrant to mow his own, but he does overpay him so he can feed his kids. So there, there's his father even being both and. Uh, he's, he's undoubtedly, he's the same age as me, 76. He's a victim of his generation, where misogyny, racism, homophobia was allowed to last and, and was the very name of the culture. I see he's from Texas, no offense, but uh, there are parts of the United States where that was... That, that those cultural values overrode the gospel. Mm. You could say all the gospel, but they were parallel universes. We'd say one thing on Sunday morning, or hear one thing on Sunday morning from Jesus, but Texas culture or any other state uh, says the opposite on Sunday afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Which one's going to win? Mm-hmm. You know? Culture trumps uh, religion in almost every religion in every part of the world. Mm -hmm. And if your religion does not give you the skills to critique your own ego, and remember culture is your extension of your ego, It'll, that's the farthest it can go. It will never get into self-critical thinking. It really can't see that. It sounds to me like your dad is a good man, huh? Mm-hmm. Outspoken love and generosity. Mm-hmm. And I believe that, and you obviously believe that. But he's a victim, and I do use the word victim, of a self-referential culture. Mm-hmm. 
the stereotypical person we call a bubba in Texas, you know? What, where do those metaphors, those words come from? Because they're 10% true. Now, if you live inside of that 10%, it is truth for you, even with a good heart. Even with a good heart. What I so appreciate about the gift of your question, Brian, is that it gives us an example almost of of um, one of the things we've been talking about is how do, how do we work toward healing division in a world that others. And this is such a concrete example of choosing to see your dad. And may this be a lens for all of us. Yes. Choosing to see those that we most tend to dismiss as being the cause of the problem. It's those people that do this, or it's this type of person, or it's the people who voted for Trump, or it's the whatever that lens is, or, if it, or it's the radical you know, liberals and their agenda. It's whatever the other is that we tend to create the them around, to have the eyes to see them in the same way that you see your father. Yeah. Look, he's this and he's that. He taught me about love and generosity. And like you said, Richard, uh, Richard he, he's a product of his time in these yeah. particular ways. It's such a loving gaze. I, I just, I hope I can remember this uh, as a as a lens through which I want to look mm. at everybody, you know, yeah. in that same kind of compassionate complexity. Yeah. Richard, I'm curious for you when, you know, part of the temptation in any of these kind of relationships is to dehumanize the other by, totally. by saying they're only this, right? They're only this fill in the blank. Uh, what do you do when you're, Tempted when in your own mind. Oh God, when, I'm terrible. When you're tempted to do that, to otherize somebody, what do you have any cues or practices that help you kind of sink in to see the Christ within them, even if it is Christ in the tomb? I have to first shut up mm. and not speak. Because as a one my first gut, I'm a gut person, my first response is from the gut, well, that man is a fool. <laughs> that woman is an idiot. Mm. And I'd be dishonest if I didn't say that's what's there right away, you know. So I can't speak, I can't speak the first words out of my mouth. And as long as feeling, here's that feeling question again, is dominating my psyche, uh, I just best keep quiet. I don't have much to contribute to the conversation. Nice. Unless I can find some place of greater depth, greater peace, greater freedom, the soul, the indwelling Holy Spirit, use whatever word you want. Uh, and there are times like that. I, I'm just so angry. Uh, at the stupidity of what I judge to be the stupidity of another person, that I can't speak in a fitting, appropriate, calming, loving way. I don't really love them. Uh, you've heard me say this before. The only answer I've been able to come up with when I'm still in that space is to say to the person, well, I have to think about that. It's, it's not taking them on, it's not challenging them, uh, but it is withholding my participation, withholding my yes, without throwing it at them mm -hmm. either. 
And I found myself having to do that. Well, I just have to think about that. Now, unfortunately, because I'm considered an important person, all eyes turn toward me then, or, well, why is it you have to think about that? You know, so I'm usually forced to explain myself. But usually that calms me down. Why do I think about that? What do I think about that? Not just feel about that. Uh, mm. uh, and usually then I can give a at least half fitting response. Yeah. yeah, that's really helpful. And it explains why whenever I ask you a question, you say, let me think about it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I kid. All your terrible questions, now, Paul. Now we know. We know the secret phrase that indicates what Richard is Richard really is thinking. Really <laughs> cussing you out in my heart. Long periods of silence. Oh my gosh. Our next question comes from Neil, uh, who resides in Nashville, Tennessee. Are there any practices, techniques, methods for living with a worldview so different than the rest of the community? Once I integrate the universal Christ understanding, how do I find fulfillment in mass when the practice feels orientated to the previous, not lower, levels of understanding? Can you open your toolbox and share what techniques do you use to access the unity consciousness during your sit time and out in the world? Let me start with this, uh, which probably isn't because not everybody's my age, but it's become easier and easier as I get older uh, because I don't have any battles to fight. Mm. Well, uh, when you're middle-aged, you do. You're still trying to create a world that you like, that you can be at home in. You have to do that, you know? Uh, now I have less skin in the game, as they say. It's like, well, I guess this is the nature of the world. It's always going to be this way. But I can only find that if I can go to a, a non-angry place within me, uh, a place that is truly empathetic for the other. Uh, but I, I feel that even in regard to the church, America, that I, I know I'm nearing the end, so I don't have much, I'm gonna use this strange phrase again, I don't know where it came from. I don't have that much skin in the game of needing to change America anymore. Mm. I'm leaving it to you. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Or to change, and it's a great freedom uh -huh. not to get so damn invested that I have to make it right, mm. which is certainly where I was from 30 to 65. I have to make it right. I don't feel the need for that. Now, I hope that doesn't make me patronizing. I'm mm -mm. afraid it does towards some people. I just, I don't, this is going to sound terrible, and it is. I don't take them seriously. Mm. So, <laughs> so not taking them seriously is to not, in my world, not to feel the need to fight them, correct them, or change them. Uh, I really don't. Well, God gave me a lot of years to grow up. You're still a 35-year-old young man. God's going to give you a lot of years to grow up. But it is not incumbent upon me to be your mentor in this moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, if that person in another context 
would ask me for mentorship, where I see there's space for it, then I'd be glad to give it. Mm. But uh, yeah, I hope there's some yeah. toolbox in there. Well, yeah, I really you. like the fact that you're saying I have less skin in the game. I think what comes to my mind is you seem to have less skin in the game in terms of reactivity, right? Like, oh, I gotta, I have to make this right or I have to tweak this or I really need to fix the fact that this community is saying this wrong. You seem to have less of that kind of skin in oh, the yeah. game, but more heart, yeah. more yeah. love, more yeah, generosity yeah. of I spirit so, that tends to yeah. allow. Yeah. And that, that gives me something to kind of orient myself toward in Neil's question where it's like, how do I find that connection when I'm in a mass where it's like, oh, this feels so rote or, mm. you know, that this is, it's mm. so appealing to, to this um, kind of the first half of life consciousness. What if it's not about us and what mm. we're getting in that yeah. moment? What if it's about what we bring but with presence and love? Um, yeah, I, I appreciate what, what you're offering us in that. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, yeah I, I think I'm speaking honestly when I say that. Mm. But it, it came from the gift of time, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm. I'm going to have to think about that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Paul is a terrible person. I want all of you listeners to know that. Very terrible person. Oh, my goodness. This whole podcast is a project just to orientate you right. towards Anagram, a different life. Passive aggressive. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so moving on to Tristan from London, he says, in this book and podcast, a lot of emphasis is placed on the value of having a contemplative practice. I'm a Quaker, so I come from a contemplative tradition. How can those of us for whom contemplation is already part of our lives expand and deepen it to become closer to the, to the Christ and to let it live more fully in the world? Mm. This is such a great yeah, question, yeah. Tristan, because I think this gets to the great and between contemplation and action and, and action and contemplation. Yeah. And for you to state and own that the Quaker tradition was one of the few, mm. if not the only, in later Christianity that valued silence. Mm. Yes. None of the rest of us got that except contemplative monks and nuns mm. who took a vow of silence. Yeah. You think his question is primarily about practice and the value of um, how can that uh, already part of our life? Yeah, expand and I deepen. think maybe one mm -hmm. of the things that comes to my mind, Richard, when I read his question is the ways in which we do tend to separate contemplation from embodied action during we the do. day. Yep, you know, yep. we, we even segment, oh, my contemplative practice is what happens when I'm mm -hmm. doing sit as opposed mm -hmm. to my contemplative practice is the whole of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, so I wonder if you can speak to that relationship that you've basically based your whole life teaching on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the movement you want to start seeing happening. That what you momentarily experience, hopefully, in the structured moment, what we're calling a sit, which most of the world doesn't know what we're talking about when we even say that. But when you begin to see that moving beyond those boundaries, and that you can maintain it in the office, in the kitchen, in the bathroom, in the other parts of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, when you can see that movement begin, then it's happening. And notice what circumstances you were in just then that allowed you to do that. 
You are non-reactive. You are not needing to win. You are not needing to prove someone else wrong. You are not, now where did that grace come from? That I didn't need to win over my wife or my husband or, uh, it, it'll be a, a space of non-need, non-urgency, non-demanding. Uh, mm -hmm. And there, for a moment, I'm doing the same thing that I momentarily experienced in the sit, the structured sit. But we, for most people, you seem to need the structure in your life to continue for that to be the validating point, the reference point. Mm -hmm. This is what freedom should feel like. This is what seeing should feel like. This is what knowing should feel like. It's non-aggressive knowing. Mm -hmm. It's non-opinionated knowing. It's non-dualistic knowing, the word we probably use too much. It's non-either-or knowing. It's non-knowledge. Uh, uh, it's not knowledge that needs to humiliate anybody else mm -hmm. or prove that I'm right. Mm -hmm. It's non-self-referential. I'm sure you all know people. It's you see it joked about on TV a lot. People who, no matter what the conversation is, they bring it back to themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, that reminds me of uh, myself. <laughs> you know what that story reminds me of? <laughs> me. <laughs> when, when you see you're not in that kind of space, mm -hmm. you are not the reference point. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to remind you of you. Mm -hmm. Couldn't it remind you of what those women are going through on the border with their babies. Uh, um, yeah. We talk a lot at the living school about um, skillful means and enlightened mm. action. This, this place where we begin to see how personal transformation yields a different kind of presence in the civic sphere, in yeah. our social interactions, yeah. in how we organize ourselves as human beings. And um, one of my favorite lines that I've ever heard uh, is from Walter Brueggemann. I'm not saying his name right. Walter Brueggemann, yeah, right? Yeah, you did, Brueggemann. you did. Um, and somebody said that they saw him at a conference and somebody said... It was a year ago today, I met him. Yeah. Was it? <laughs> oh my right. gosh. Me a picture, yeah. Um, <clears throat> somebody said to him, Walter, what, what, what would you say the most urgent thing is in our time to live out as Christians? Something along these lines, yes. you know. And he said, what is most needed in our world today is non-anxious presence. Mm. Wow. And that line has, has stayed with non me, non-anxious presence. presence. And I realize that so much of what's happening with me in That's SIT lovely. lately in my own practice is locating and relaxing these points of anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as I let go, as I watch what comes up, Sometimes it's not even watching a thought as much as noticing where in my body I'm just so tightly bound up mm -hmm. thinking that I have to fix this or I have to do that or if this if I don't do this somehow the world's going to end like yeah. what where does that kind of narcissistic thinking mm -hmm. come from but as I as I relax myself I feel then I'm able to move mm -hmm. into my day and into the world from a different place mm -hmm. It reminds me of uh, Merton's letter to a young activist where he talks about, you know, the energy with which you bring to these causes oh, can yeah. sometimes be more destructive than actually the work you're trying to do. Yeah. And we don't often think in those terms when it comes to, 
to how we how we bring a contemplative presence to any of our actions, whether it's works of justice or whether it's parenting or or at our jobs, that we can create more and more uh, trauma or turmoil for those around us by bringing um, a, a non-contemplative stance. If I can, I, I can't think of a better a phrase than that uh, to to our spaces. Mm. Yeah, and also as a kind of a, a endpoint to that question and Richard I'd love your input on this it seems like our culture is one that values and celebrates the frenetic pace mm. what was it that I said to you in the car yesterday it was like the illusion um, the oh, addiction yeah. to the illusion of urgency mm. that we live mm. off this adrenaline mm. that's addicted mm. to the false notion of a perceived urgency mm. I mean and so it, it sort of feeds the ego of self-importance because everything has to be like mm. one thing after the next and you know, put in more meetings and let's do more mm. after-school activities. And so I just want to name that as part of what the waters we're having kind of, to kind of swim oh. against a bit as we really decide to make choices intentionally mm. about, I don't want to live into that frenetic pace of believing that you know, I have to do this. And I don't know. Does that make sense it, to either of you? Sure, it does. Sure, it yeah. does. Busyness has become a status symbol. <laughs> if you can say, oh, I got so much to do today. <laughs> you must really be important, you know, to, that you have to do all these things. I, I'm, I'm I, well, you understand. I'm really serious about that. And I'm guilty of it. I mean, you all see me rushing through the center because I developed a momentum in my middle life of I've got to save the world and I've got to <laughs> write this book and make this set of tapes and, and uh, so forth. And it gave me a sense of value, importance. And that's why for years I would go off to hermitages during Lent. It was the only way I had to stop the momentum entirely, you mm -hmm. know. And uh, the, the, my greatest books came from that. In fact, the first draft of The Universal Christ was written. Mm. And that's really the skeleton of the book that persisted till the end was written in a hermitage space. But I, because I am a type A personality, uh, driven toward doing, fixing, and so forth, uh, I don't know any other way to get off that treadmill except by giving myself some absolute lines in the sand. Mm. My little house that I call a hermitage is really my primary line in the sand. Mm. It's not just a, a, a statement about uh, physical quiet, but it's more a statement, and I've told the Franciscans this, that I'm not going to accept every social engagement that I'm invited to, or every dinner out, every... Because what, you've, what I found halfway through my life uh, is you could have a dinner out every night. And I don't want to be at the end of my life say I had a lot of good dinners, <laughs> which I have Wait, had. you don't? <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I want to take this occasion. To, the Quaker tradition must be recognized and praised yes. for holding on to the holy quiet. I don't know how much training they got from the older tradition, what they learned to do with their silence. Uh, 
but that they so made the connection between quiet and especially nonviolence, mm -hmm. that their politics was invariably critical of establishment English and then American politics. Mm -hmm. um, I know it got defeated just like we all did. I mean, Nixon was a Quaker, so uh, we've, <laughs> we've had plenty of Catholics who, who still use the word and the reality is lost, but the reality is still essential to Christian identity, and they held on to it better than most. Mm. And it makes me want to offer a quick plug for Paulette Meyer, who's a Quaker who Whoa. has put a lot of Quaker sayings yeah. to music, and I sing a lot of them with my kids, yeah. and they're profound teachings wow, in and I, of themselves. I remember that Paulette Meyer. Yeah, yeah. So okay. for those of you listening, it's powerful Quaker teaching. Yeah. Good call. So Richard, we come here to the last question of uh, this this episode from Dana from Kansas. From Kansas. One of your people. One of my own. <laughs> my question is about the idea of the universal Christ and how, what that means for our definition of spiritual experience. I was raised fundamentalist and for a long time I was comfortable with that. As I moved and grew away from that way of thinking, my fear was that I wouldn't have anything left to my faith. Yep. I realized that it couldn't be my knowledge of the Bible or adherence to certain rules, but I didn't know what else it could be. I heard mystics and others say that their spiritual experience is what kept them in the faith. But because I have never had a miraculous experience happen to me, I thought that was impossible for me and envied my friends who did have those sorts of experiences. As I read your book and listen to your podcast, it occurred to me that if Christ isn't everything, Maybe my non-miraculous experiences counted too. Wow. Maybe God yeah. hadn't neglected me. And any experience I had, however ordinary, could be a spiritual experience. Loving or being loved by another person. Being struck with wonder in nature. Or eating really good food. Have I understood this correctly? I'd really appreciate your thoughts. See, those Kansas people are just smart, spiritually smart. <laughs> this makes me cry. It's so, it's so uh, yeah. profound and uh, meaningful. She's got her own answer there. Yeah. When the ordinary becomes extraordinary, you don't need the extraordinary anymore. <laughs> you, you stop looking for it. And I say that as a Catholic who loved to have apparitions and visions and, and you know, holy places where Mary appeared and all the rest. So we were experts at this, looking for the supposed miraculous. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that keeps you at early stage spirituality. It really does. And Dana is already there to recognize that, you know, the fact that I'm breathing, the fact this body is all working with all of its different elements that I will have never seen, You've never seen all your bodily organs, and they've been working for you all your life, you know. Just, but you've got to take a moment of wonder and awe to appreciate that. And you think you're so smart. Could you create a kidney? <laughs> <laughs> or do you even know how the kidney works? Uh -huh. or, or if it doesn't work, think of the people who are attached to machines, like my own sister, for the rest of their life. Then the wonder that we can create machines like a dialysis machine 
that's another level of miracle. Mm -hmm. You don't have to say that because it's man-made, human-made, that isn't to the wonder of God, the glory of God. And when I look at modern architecture, just modern construction, and that is giving glory to God that human beings have achieved all these building materials and and all the wires and pipes and and that you put a bunch of people on a site for five months and then this skyscraper stands there and all the toilets flush and I guess <laughs> <laughs> it's just miraculous yeah. the glory God has given to humanity to create wondrous, wondrous things. Once you can get excited, I mean, haven't you thought that in New York? How can all those toilets flush? Yeah. <laughs> and all those showers work in all those big buildings in New York? That's enough to make you not just give glory to God, yeah. but to give glory to God's presence in humanity. To... Uh, to care for all these different things, to understand all these different things. And some people take that understanding to a level of passion about it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Discovering a fabric that will be uh, rain resistant, or mm -hmm. you know? And now there's 10 different ones that are. Someone had to care to create raincoats. I'm just th saying the first things that come yeah, yeah. to my mind, yeah. you know? but. Uh, now, then the ordinary has become extraordinary, and the whole world is God-soaked. In this case, God releasing the soaking, I don't know, with the raincoat, but it's... Uh, <laughs> well done. Well, um, that's the mature position. Yeah. It, it reminds me of that line, I don't know what poem this is from, we'll figure it out, but from Mary Oliver, where she says... You know, listen, maybe attention attention mm. isn't the perfect prayer, but it must be close. Mm. You know, it must be close because it, it puts us in touch with that yes. walk, yes. that um, awe and yes. wonder. Yes. The ability yes. to see Christ soaked, like the, you know, the, um, the, the Christ shining through all things. Shining through. Uh, you know, even um, if it's the dirty dishes yeah. and the... One more diaper it's a or diaphanous. Diaphanous. Universe. That's the word I was yeah. trying yeah. to think of. Light yeah. shining through. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I I was mad at myself that I didn't use that word in the book, mm -hmm. diaphanous. Mm -hmm. But most people would we'd have to look it up. Because <laughs> I did too, you know. Yeah. And so Richard, we've covered a lot of ground in this season, um, with these questions from all these listeners. From the Holy Spirit to parenting to here we are now, as we kind of close out this chapter and this season of Another Name for Everything, do you have any words of hope to offer folks as they try to integrate this in their lives to take one step further of what it means to participate in the universal Christ? The best advice I can give many people who write to me is, and it sounds so naive, so simple, but you must trust yourself. You must trust that God is within you. And that's why I can tell you to trust yourself, because God is within you. That is to trust your best self. So then you overcome the split between God and self. Then you have a good theology and a good anthropology. 
and for too long those have been separate. Can you possibly believe, I try to say this somewhere in the book, that to trust your own experience could be the only way to trust God? My God, that sounds dangerous at first. And I hope I quote in the book Joan of Arc, who at her court is a court case, is accused of trusting her own voices. She says, do you think God speaks to all of us through our own voices? And she apparently was sort of stunned by it. And she said, how else would God speak to us? Mm. <laughs> and you say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when you make so much of the church mm. or so much of the Bible, the sad, the price we've paid is we don't know how to listen to that phrase that has become so common, to the better angels of our nature. Mm -hmm. And after a while you can tell when it's your best self and when it's your stingy self. When it's your best self and when it's your reactive self. You'll learn that by middle age. If you just give it respect, start giving it respect in your young age. That some of your thoughts are God's thoughts. Some of your feelings, be careful for. <laughs> Some of your feelings are God's feelings, all right? Uh, Richard, one, some of your angers, be careful, are God's anger. Some of them. And you'll learn to, to feel the difference. So that's a closing offering. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Richard. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.